Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is novelist, playwright and critic Louise Doughty, who first appeared on the Faber podcast in 2010 to talk about her previous novel, Whatever You Love. I met Louise again recently to interview her about her latest book, Apple Tree Yard, which shares with its predecessor an interest in the working out of vengeance, though in an entirely different context. There can't be a woman alive, writes Hilary Mantel of this novel, who hasn't once realised in a moment of panic that she is in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong man. Louise Doughty, more sure-footed with each novel, leads her unnerved reader into dark territory. Yvonne Carmichael certainly finds herself in the situation Mantel describes. Yvonne, a successful scientist in her early fifties, whose life seems outwardly fulfilling and complete, begins an intense relationship with a man she encounters at the Houses of Parliament, without knowing his name or anything about him. Very soon she is leading a double life, and embarked on a series of ever greater risks that will lead her to the dock in the Old Bailey on a murder charge. I began by asking Louise to tell me more about Yvonne Carmichael, a woman who describes herself as pathologically law-abiding. Well, she's a very capable woman. She's succeeded in a man's field. She's always been a talented scientist. She's come from a slightly difficult background. Um, She's been raised by her father and an older brother and an aunt. Um, Her mother has died when she was young. She's gone off to university and studied sciences at a time when women were still a rarity on science courses. And she's been very organised. She starts going out at university with the most talented young male scientist on her course. They agree to get married, to have the children early while they're still working on their PhDs. So she's very much somebody who, when the novel opens, thinks that she has her whole life planned out. She's been successful. Her children have grown up and left home. Her husband is also successful. They've got a nice house in the suburbs. And I I think you know when you encounter someone like that in a novel that they're due for a fall, that something very dramatic and often unpleasant is about to happen to them. Um, Because people who who think they're in control of their lives uh, very often find out they're not at all, of course. And she's made genuine contributions to science and is now highly respected to the point that she goes to advise a House of Lords Standing Committee on Science. Yes, I was very interested in playing with that idea that I certainly have at my age, and I know a lot of friends my age have, you reach a certain point in your career where you score points almost just for being still in the game, I think. And it's quite a shock if you're used to working extremely hard and struggling in your career. And then you realise that actually you've reached a certain level where um, you're given a certain status. And it's a very pleasing thing to realise, but it's also a slightly surprising thing. And Yvonne is very much at that stage. She works for a very prestigious research institute in St. James, and she's someone who's completely at ease, strolling through the security at Portcullis House, going into a committee room um, with MPs, researchers, journalists, and she sits there and, and does her bit. And she's someone who's very comfortable with that now. What was it that made you see the erotic potential of the Houses of Parliament? Was it, is it the sort of coexistence of the sort of power and the free song you get from power? I don't mean you, I mean one. Oh, absolutely. Um, I had a very interesting tour of the Houses of Parliament with a police officer who's in charge of emergency and events planning. So if something goes wrong, he's the man running down the corridor, um, sorting everything out, slamming the door shut and shouting at people. Of course, what struck me about the Houses of Parliament is it's full of cubby holes and secret passages and secret places. 
And you have a very potent and powerful situation there. You have a lot of MPs working till the small hours of the morning. Very often they're men away from their constituencies or women. Uh, you have a lot of young researchers. And I think you have power and a certain sort of man or woman who I often think my theory about those people is people who were bullied at school and then have become very successful in their field. And I think those are the kind of people who are, I think, personality-wise and professionally, simply more likely to have affairs, A, because they have the opportunity, um, but B, because they, they have a need to be validated. Um, they have a need to have their own hard work and achievement validated. And I think it's a very, very potent mix. You know, just look at how many scandals we've had over the years with politicians, researchers, secretaries, MPs. There's a reason why that happens. And certainly it's very hard not to go round the Houses of Parliament and see all those small secret areas and think, gosh, you know, I hope they're running the country in here. They might be at it like rabbits for all we know. <laughs> I found that very easy to understand and very interesting. And also it's possible within those corridors of power for people to project images of themselves, to exaggerate, aggrandise their sense of importance, the, the extent to which they've got, you know, some influence on power. And that, that's the kind of world into which Yvonne is, is sucked, isn't it? Oh, very much so. When I, I had my tour of the Houses of Parliament with a police officer, he said the new MPs, the new members of Parliament, when they come in on the first day, um, you know, they would hold open the doors for each other and, you know, be very polite and introduce themselves and shake his hand and say, oh, I'm so and so, I'm the new member for such and such. He said within a fortnight, if you stop those people and ask, could they please wear their pass, they're responding with, don't you know who I am? I think that power corrupts it's a terrible cliche but it really does I think that power is seductive and it leads people to behave in ways in their personal life that reflects their desires and ambitions in their professional life and we've seen that time and time again but of course with with, with Yvonne it, it wasn't just that she was seduced by an aura of power was it there was something she says it may a kind of moment which happens only three or four times in a lifetime maybe not never happens at all maybe if i'd gone the next week it wouldn't you know nothing would have happened but some some conjunction you know happens between these two people which then leads to a physical conjunction yes very much so i think it is one of these sort of once in a lifetime coincidences but also that it does come at a certain point in her life where she's very much in control her children are grown up she's high achieving and then suddenly someone comes along who says, I'm going to take charge for a minute. And she finds that very seductive because all her life she's been in charge of her life. She's been in control. And it's very sexy for her to actually realise she's not in control, that something is happening that she's never planned, she's never Im imagined. And I think that it's very easy to understand how somebody like her could reach a point where she just wants a holiday from being what she normally is. And I think a lot of people feel that at a certain age. Of course, the trouble is, is that then if that's discovered or if it continues, then your normal life can also completely unravel, which is exactly what happens to Yvonne. I think she says at one point, I'm owed this, doesn't she? Yes, she does feel she's owed it. She feels she's worked hard. She's raised her children. Uh, one of her children has problems. Um, she's dealt with that. You know, she recycles the newspapers every week. She's a good wife, a good mother, and a very good geneticist. And she feels she is owed, if you like, the space to do something stupid. Um, but of course, what she doesn't realise is that 
nobody gives you a holiday to go off and do something stupid without it affecting the rest of your life. I mean, there's there's a, a line in the novel, which I think for me is one of the most important lines in the novel, which is safety and security are commodities you can sell in return for excitement, but you can never buy them back. Although she is doing something stupid, you know, risking her, her life and her, her, fam- her family, She's not unself-aware, is she? Being a scientist, I suppose, she is, she's analytical. She, she can look at herself quite, um, quite harshly at times, quite objectively. Yes, that was one of the interesting aspects of creating Yvonne for me because, um, I mean, you're, you're talking to a woman who got an E in O-level chemistry <laughs> and I think that was only because the markers were generous that day. And for me to create a convincing scientist, a woman in her 50s, I had to work very hard at thinking her processes of thought would be different from mine. And I spoke to scientists, I spoke to a woman geneticist who works in Yvonne's field, a woman who's been naming genes as they've been discovered, um, who's worked on the Human Genome Project. I visited the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute for Genomic Research, as it's called, outside Cambridge, and spoke to scientists there. And it was very interesting just to talk to them and just to see that their thought processes were slightly different because they were used to, here is the evidence, let's have a thesis, let's have a counter thesis, and then let's put the two together and see what we end up with in perhaps a way in which the rest of us don't. And Yvonne does that with her affair. She does that with her relationship with her husband. She thinks things through. But of course, the truth is she doesn't always come to the right conclusion. I have a quote at the beginning of the book from Janet Malcolm, which is something like, we go through life mishearing, misseeing and misunderstanding so that the stories we tell ourselves will add up. We all have a novel of our own lives and when something happens to us we make that evidence fit our preconceived narrative. Scientists are not supposed to do that. Scientists are supposed to look at the evidence and then draw their own conclusions from that. And Yvonne gets those two processes very badly confused once her life starts to spin out of control. When her life starts to go out of control, her control of the narrative eludes her too, doesn't it? That's a, a major theme of the novel, it seemed to me, how your own narrative can be taken away from you. You can be presented in court, for example, as completely other than you feel yourself to be. Yes, and uh, that was one of the fascinating aspects of the research for the book. I sat through a three-week murder trial at the Old Bailey. I was there from start to finish. And watching the barristers at work was really extraordinary for a novelist because it made me realise how close their job is to the job I do because the barristers came into court each with their own preconceived narrative and then presented the evidence that fitted their narrative. And of course, the rival barrister had a rival narrative and often presented quite different parts of evidence. And then the jury really had to choose who was the best novelist, I think, in court. You know, which of those guys in the wig is the best novelist? Um, I think that, to me, plugs very much into the whole running themes of the book. We have our narratives, then something happens that overturns the narrative. What do we do? Do we reject that evidence and try and disprove something that's happened? Or do we somehow change the narrative of, of our lives. And of course, occasionally there are sometimes extrinsic events that come out of the blue that we can't control at all, mm. that completely upend our idea of who we are, which is a very disturbing thing for anyone. And those barristers you mentioned are using the same techniques as novelists too, aren't they? They're using delay and suspense and subversion and misdirection and surprise and all, all those things. And 
the view that comes out of the novel is is that it's a it's a highly cynical process. It's all it's all highly calculated. You know, to, even to the point to, in the day when the witness is tired, when you're going to spring something on them, and how you're going to creep up on it. Oh, very much so. I mean, I came out of the three-week trial I sat through with feelings of profound ambivalence about the system of adversarial justice that we have in this country, because it did seem very much about the success of the barristers as novelists, uh, their success at presenting the narrative they've created. And then, of course, you're at the mercy of whether you have a good barrister or not. But even when it's two very good barristers in court, there were so many other factors that came into play. Um, people's physical demeanour, the way the witnesses behaved on the stand, all those factors that you just mentioned, what time of day information came out. And I know, I mean, certainly in France, there's, there's a very different system of justice where you have a judge who is presented with all the facts and then creates a narrative, if you like, based on all the facts as opposed to two narratives in opposition. And it does seem as well that in the system of adversarial justice we have in this country, the ability to destroy a witness on the stand is something that's very important for any barrister, using whatever means he or she has at her disposal. And obviously some witnesses are much more easily destroyed than others, particularly working class or inarticulate witnesses. And I, I think the, the classism of our, mm. our system of criminal justice really, really troubled me by the end of that trial. But also presumably the, the sexual politics that go on, whether the barrister is, is male or female and the witness and all sorts of presuppositions that, that go into that or aspects of the witness's past which um, are brought to bear. Yes, completely. I mean, the sexual politics of criminal justice, um, I mean, lots of other people have written about it other than me, but they are extraordinary. Everything in the novel was taken from real life. I mean, for instance, all the lines about the way that Yvonne would be treated, how it was a good idea for her to wear a blouse with a bit of embellishment because she wants to look capable, but you want the jury to see her feminine side. Every single line in the book was taken from something a barrister or a police officer or a lawyer actually said to me. None of that was invented. And um, I know that some people will be sceptical about just how prejudicial criminal justice it seems to be against Yvonne in this novel, but I can promise you I had to tone it down. On the witness stand, a woman's morality, truthfulness and reliability is simply judged by different criteria. And the main criteria by which it is judged is her sexual morality. So if a woman is seen to be in any way unreliable in terms of her sexual morality, then that affects every aspect of how what she says is regarded in court. So we've still got an awfully long way to go. Yeah, there's a real throwaway mark that Yvonne makes to some colleagues about coffee from the coffee machines. And she says, I'm, I think she's, I'm cheap and easy or something mm. like that. And it's a, re- it's a really casual remark. But that is brought back in the trial and it's held up as a, as a, a sign that she's, you know, of, of loose morality. Yes. I mean, the, the, the barrister asks her, you know, did, have you ever told anyone you're promiscuous? And she doesn't know what the barrister is talking about. And then that comes back to her using a throwaway line about coffee, horrible coffee from a machine in the foyer. And I have seen that happen in court. You know, that is the way evidence gets presented against witnesses. And it does seem to me that we are getting something wrong when destroying witnesses as opposed to encouraging witnesses to be truthful is a driving motivation behind a barrister's questioning. You know, I think there's 
there are many cases in recent years where we've seen where the protection of witnesses on the stand has been appalling and um, I think there has to be a better way of doing it than the way we're doing it at the moment. You mentioned, one of your characters mentions a working class teenage girl who was gang raped and because there were five defendants, there were five barristers. Therefore, this girl was on the stand for five days, really being destroyed in sequence, day after day. Yes, I'm sorry to say that's a real case too. Um, that's based on something a police officer told me about in a, a multiple rape like that, a teenager. Each of those defendants is entitled to their own barrister. And there are five men in wigs or women in wigs who stand up and call a girl like that a liar, one after the other. And, you know, these are Cambridge-educated men and women with every level of articulacy and argument at their disposal facing a working-class teenager. And as one police officer said to me, and it's a line I use in the book, that's what we do to children. It's a very big topic, and it's one that's been written about a great deal in the press. But for me to try and take that topic and articulate it somehow within a novel was a real challenge because... You do have to stay with Yvonne and you do have to be very much on her side. But she herself is a morally ambivalent character. And um, that was a very tricky balance to pull off. The view of male sexuality, Louise, it seemed to me that comes out of the book is, is, quite, a, is quite a dark one. Both Yvonne's lover, who, who is a, a, a predatory human being, you know, whatever other qualities he has, and one of her colleagues is, 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 is certainly predatory. But even when she goes to examine some, I think they're MSC candidates, she's, in, she's a visiting examiner, and she's in a position of power and authority. She's, she doesn't really have anything to worry about. But she describes the, their antics as, as chimpanzee behaviour because of the way they're sort of, you know, they're sort of ex, you know, they're experimenting with how, how obvious they can be um, in, in front of her about their, um, their sort of feelings. Is that a fair sort of uh, portrayal of your sort of view of, um, of male sexuality, would you say? Well, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I think it's a fair portrayal from the, the point of view of the vast majority of women women spend their lives being treated as prey by the opposite gender and you know that's the reality of our experience and it's something you learn as a young girl from the minute you leave the house on your own my daughter's experience you know men talking to them on buses men following them on buses um, men giving them notes on buses I mean, the, the things you have to teach your daughter when she starts using public transport about how to handle herself are extraordinary. And, you know, that's from the age of 12, 13 onwards. And I'm knocking on 50. And all I can say is it hasn't stopped yet. Um, I don't think it ever does, really. Actually, it stops for a bit when you're pushing a pram. That's a hefty disincentive. But I mean, that is that is the reality of life out there being on on the street walking down the street for the vast majority of women all the time and you know certainly the scene you're talking about when she goes to examine the MSc students that's based on two events I did um, one giving a talk in a boys school and uh, another public event I did uh, with a lot of young men in the audience and you know there are a lot of men out there who will never let you forget your gender for a minute and that's just the reality of most women's lives. And that's what we all have to get used to dealing with you know, day in, day out, really. Let's talk a, bit, a little bit about revenge. It seems to me that revenge is one of the strongest plot drivers you can possibly have. So tell me about how you sort of wanted to, to handle that. 
Well, I'm very interested in revenge. I think it's an abiding theme through more than one novel. Um, It certainly was in Whatever You Love, the previous novel. A friend recently said to me a wonderful line about revenge, which is, revenge is like drinking poison while hoping the other person will die. And I think that to me gets to the heart of it, which is um, the desire for revenge turns in on itself to damage the person who has that desire. And I think that if you do something through vengeful, malicious or spleenful motives, it will rebound on you some way or another. You know, I believe that very strongly. And it's a hard lesson to teach one's children, for instance, because, you know, if a child's been hurt in a playground, they want to hurt the other person back. And trying to explain that there's a difference between justice which is telling a teacher, which may or may not produce the right result, and between wanting to go and thump them back and explain the difference between those two and the difference between motivations in those two acts is a very difficult one because I think that revenge is a human instinct. I think it's to react against people we perceive as hurting us is only normal and it's to do with preservation of life and preservation of the species. And in a sort of so-called civilised society, um, in a state where we have a rule of law, nobody is supposed to want to go to court for revenge. We're supposed to want to go to court for justice. But of course, in our hearts, in our black little hearts, Mm. it doesn't feel quite like that. Mm. I I wondered if, if, well, of course, men and women will read the book differently, but that aspect of it, if men and women will read the the revenge aspect of it differently. do Do you have a feeling about that? Well, that's an interesting question. I'll be interested to know, actually. I am quite curious to know how men will react to this book. (laughs) Um, And so far, I've had reactions, obviously, from within favour from the publishing house, and everyone's been very positive, but it's it's yet to go out into the wider world. um, So I don't really know. I think there are certain certainly different ways in which the male and the female desire for revenge is perceived within society. So, I mean, the example I've used before, which is if a man goes and thumps another man who is having an affair with his wife, that would be seen by a lot of people as laudable and manly. Whereas if a woman did the same thing, it's seen as being vengeful and vindictive and so on. And one of the most sort of sexist phrases in our current lexicon is hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, which I actually think is a disgusting phrase. And it upsets me when people use it in a society where two women every week are murdered by a partner or an ex-partner. That's 100 women a year are killed vengefully by their lovers or ex-lovers. And until we see the point where hundreds of men are being killed vengefully as opposed to the arms cut off their suits, you know, I find that a really, really offensive phrase. And it's not to do with what men or women are actually doing. It's to do with our preconceptions about the way in which those sorts of acts are perceived as to be either manly or feminine or unfeminine in the case of anything violent or active or vengeful. And your novel had really pre-established though, hadn't it, that Yvonne didn't really have a a fair crack at recourse to law. She wouldn't because she'd be ruined by it. She's worried about loss of agency. She's worried about being reduced to being a victim. And that that at best is what she would have been. And, And at worst, it would have been very much worse than that. So it was either vengeance or nothing, I suppose, for her. Yes, it was. Um, I mean, she she comes to feel that very strongly. She's you know sensible enough and intelligent enough and aware enough to know that actually there are certain situations in which justice is not possible. And then what do you do? 
I think also I deliberately leave a question mark in the reader's mind as to her level of culpability in the act of revenge that takes place in the book. And I do want the reader to make their own mind up about just how culpable she is, because there are separate issues here, how culpable she is in the eyes of the law and how culpable she is morally in her heart. And the violent act, that the most violent act that occurs in the book it's done by one person, but it's done with the collusion of another person. And I think there's a whole issue as when you have what's called in the novel a joint enterprise murder, but any joint act between two people, what you often end up with is a situation where neither person would have done that on their own. But together, those two people are more than the sum of their parts, and they do something jointly. In those cases, where does moral responsibility, where does individual moral responsibility lie? Because neither would have done it as an individual. It's the combination of those two people that has led to that act. And we've seen that time and time again in um, in real life crime stories. And that's why we have the law of joint enterprise murder in this country. The law as it stands in this country says you are all jointly responsible. And as a novelist, you don't show that act being committed. So you don't, you, the reader has to think for him or herself about what actually went on. And also, you don't scrutinise Yvonne's every thought while that is going on. You sort of pull back a bit. So again, it's up to the reader to, to try to think, well, to imagine what might have been going through her head at that time. Yes, there's a passage in the book where Yvonne describes what she thinks happened in that room. But of course, by then, the reader knows that Yvonne is not an entirely reliable narrator. Yvonne has got things wrong in the past. She might be getting things wrong now. And it is very much up to the reader to decide whether or not Yvonne is right about what she thinks happened there. Louise Doughty. Apple Tree Yard is out in hardback this June. For more information, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with more programmes, including interviews with novelist Marcel Theroux and poet Emily Berry, who will be telling me about her debut collection. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.